This is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta. My guest today is Mark Cobb, the drummer for Yacht Rock Review, one of the biggest and busiest nationally touring tribute acts in the country. Mark grew up in Indiana, attended Indiana University, and after brief stints in LA and Chicago, landed in Atlanta, where he has spent most of his career. The rise in popularity of the Yacht Rock genre and the growth of the Yacht Rock Review have been symbiotic, and the band has gone from humble beginnings in Atlanta sports bars to sold-out theater tours, top-dollar private events, and music cruises alongside the likes of Kid Rock, Train, and Zac Brown Band. They'll be touring all over the U.S. in the spring of 2020, and in addition to their usual set list of AM Gold hits, they'll be featuring some original songs from their new album, Hot Dads in Tight Jeans. We have new content up on Patreon. It is a studio drumming tutorial by Brian Stevens, who has really outdone himself with 50 minutes of content for us. So huge thanks to Brian for that. If you want to help support Working Drummer Podcast, a donation of as little as $1 a month gets you access to this exclusive educational content on Patreon. So go to patreon.com slash working drummer and become a patron to help us keep going strong. So Mark is a smart, energetic dude, and we bounced around to quite a few topics and ideas over the course of this good long talk. So I hope you dig it. Here's Mark Cobb. You get personality musicians out there who, uh, you know, like, uh, he's not in L.A., but um, when I met Sean, um, uh, uh, drummer from uh, Saturday Night Live. Sean Pelton. Uh, Pelton, thank yeah. you, yeah. Like, he's such a New York cat. Like, uh-huh. his his lingo and his, his body... Uh, language and his mannerisms and yeah dig it and like hey like he's just this larger than life like you could draw him like on the simpsons and know exactly who he is (laughs) and and that that's so cool that that was probably nurtured over time and and he doesn't think like i'm doing this thing or maybe he does i don't know but uh but there's so much of that in la where you're like i think that's somebody important and it's just he's just a valet right you know but like there's it's like looks and present presentation are such a part before you even get to substance yeah like that that sense of you know uh I have to drive the right car and I have to have the right, you know, like everything is like product placement and yep. that, that, and coming back to Instagram and social media, like that's just, that's become such a thing where I can have the worst gig, but you look at this picture and it's like, Hey, we've got a sellout crowd tonight. And you just think, Oh, this is a dream gig. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the times it's just, it's like anything else. It's work Yeah, showing up and you made it and then can't wait to get back to the hotel and binge watch something right. until it starts over. And the next day might be a great gig and it might be another outdoor gig that was not, weather was not thought about in right. the planning of that gig, which is more and more the case these days, I feel like. You yeah. know, people think, oh, it'll be safe to do a gig around Halloween outdoors. And it's 30 degrees at night in right. Charlotte, you know, <laughs> you're wearing gloves. And so it's just very much, uh, you know, I don't know, the social media thing is a way of going like, hey, look, I'm doing great out there. You know, my parents will look and just go, well, we don't have to worry about him. It looks like he's or that's the coming back to the Josh Freeze thing. He'll post pictures of his family in Paris or other stuff. And I like that you don't have to say this is my music page. 
and this is my personal page. Right. Once I decided to open it up to everybody, my wife's like, just you know, be careful what you put out there because yeah. you may have some crazy person. And now they're like, oh, he has a you know a daughter in second grade. So do I. Maybe we could be friends and try to contact me about that. And that's I don't know if that's a problem that I have and. Great. I'll make an adjustment <laughs> at the time if I have to worry about yeah. stalkers. But you right. know, like if I if I, I happen upon someone's Instagram and it's like it's all drums. If it's just like if every post is like the same shot from the same angle of yeah, just like because yeah. you see those posts. Oh, it's, absolutely. It's kind of a branding thing, I guess. But I, I'm just not. I thought about like, taking like 50 pictures of my drum kit and then like from <laughs> where you can't really tell where it's taken from, and then just having a backlog. So I don't. <laughs> I can be at home and I, I, the gigs are over. And right. I just tag that. Right. Like, like take one from behind it and then yeah. one in front of it. I wonder <laughs> how many people actually maybe even do that just to look like they're you know. Yeah. Busy. I mean, and it's an understandable impulse to to want to make that like the face of your brand and to put your best foot forward and to just make it seem like you're doing as well as you can make it seem. Yeah, sure. But it it I think it creates unrealistic expectations and and uh Well, you have endorsements. I mean, yeah. when I filled out endorsement sheets over the last few years, uh one of the main questions that's early on in the application is how many people and this might not be all, but from my experience with the bigger companies, how many people are following you on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter? What's your Twitter, Instagram, Facebook handle? And I think before they even get down to playing experience or any of the other like things that you would think would take precedence, you see, you know, I would imagine somebody's job there is immediately go and, and do what you just described. Yeah. How many pictures are of the drum kit? What have they tagged? Is it visible? Can you see our logo? Like, because those kind of things are probably selling more gear now yeah. than doing a drum clinic where, mm -hmm. you know, every kid there is going to go, wow, I didn't realize so-and-so played Sabian. That's what I want to play now. Yeah. As opposed to, like, just in 10 minutes you can scroll through and watch a Gospel Shreds drummer, mm -hmm. you know, and if he's playing Minel, like, well, then I'll play Minel. And, and that person's only going to get seen if they have 10,000 or more you know, Instagram followers. Yeah. So I see a lot of really good looking young female drummers and they're great players. Yeah. But that just wasn't a thing in my high school. We didn't have a lot of drum kit players. We maybe had a lot more symphonic concert yeah. band. And I just didn't. But now it's an, anyone has access to, to being able to, to, to play and have an iPhone or a GoPro and a laptop. And yeah. you can just just like modeling, you can be an Instagram model and get paid without ever having a contract, right? Or and having done any of the blood, sweat, and tears. Yeah. You know, you're just in your room recording drum grooves all day. And it requires a, a certain skill set to uh, accumulate ten thousand followers or fifty thousand followers sure. or whatever. But, but tagging and hashtagging and all that stuff's a big part of that, right? It's it's a big part of it, and persistence, just doing it like every day, consistency every day. Like it's a certain skill set, but it's a different skill set than like running a music career out, sure. out in the world, right? And some people are good at doing both. Like I'm, I'm interviewing uh, uh, Gerard Sullivan next week from Four Corners. Okay. And he's just, he's gigging all over the freaking world, all over the time. 
And he has 90,000 Instagram followers. Oh. Well, how many of those are international since he started going over the world? Though? Who knows? Yeah. Like, I, you know, if I have somebody that's like a bikini model that's not a real person, it's a big fat guy, like in a cubicle. Right. And because one time I liked a photo, you know, of like a swimsuit model or something, which in a moment of weakness, you know, like, this guy's like, oh, maybe he would like my model, you know? And like, he's sending this blast out to people. And I'm like, oh, man. Yeah, yeah. Clear my Instagram feed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You got you to gotta weed it out once. Not to mention, it's just a time suck. And there's a lot of times where on the road, you know, you just can't be challenged by a book or, you know, trying to engage your brain. And so just getting on the old, like, you know, yeah. smartphone and just scroll, starting to scroll, you get two hours all of a sudden. You're like, well, now it's, I'm here. Yeah. You know, And but what did I get out of that? And I'm, I'm trying to turn so, it off. I'm trying to turn it off. Like I'm off Facebook right now, but I feel guilty about it. Yeah, I'm not on Facebook anymore. Reasons. I'm not on Facebook, but I can feel my Instagram usage going up and up and up. And I'm trying to just like turn it off and say that that isn't the real world. It doesn't have anything to do yeah. with your actual career. No. Like get back into the real world and do some shit that will yield some results. Well, in- Facebook owns Instagram. When did that happen? I don't all of a sudden it was like I, know, I was three years ago. Wait a minute, or something? Who owns Instagram? I was like, Oh, Facebook. So yeah. it's just a different it's like Gap in Old Navy. You're like, oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm not wearing Old Navy. That's cheap stuff. It's like it's all made in the same place. Yeah. One has one label and they charge a little bit more for it. But yeah. it's really like, yes, it's it's less political. It's less people trying to argue because it's hard to do that with a photograph. Right. Uh, but it's still in a certain way become that because now I'm being targeted for ads. I'm seeing, you know, if I buy something on Amazon and I somehow have accounts linked, I can see all the time like, okay, this is turning more into a um, – uh, a way of of manipulating what I got on there to do, as right. opposed to I want to look and see what my friends are up to, and yeah. I don't feel like I need to call, call them and have a two hour conversation. I can kind of learn, and that's what was good for my parents. Like I can learn what he's up to and see pictures of his kids, and then now I don't feel like you know we have to have this long conversation to catch up. Right. Uh, that's also me. Probably I'm a little guilty that I don't stay in touch with some of my extended family enough. Right. And so like. That's a bad, horrible excuse. So I'm going to keep Instagram because, you know, I'm certainly not going to change that habit and start calling my family more often. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I better Which start more posting more important yeah. things on Instagram. Yeah. That's a horrible way of, of justification, but I don't know. I want to jump ahead to, yeah. to just your, your Yacht Rock review life. Um, is there like a... Is it, it's been going long enough now? Is there kind of a yearly rhythm to what you guys do as far as the types of gigs you do at one time of the year, and then it, it kind of morphs into this next thing, the next season? Yeah, um, uh, every year has been different. I think a little bit in terms of uh, our strategy. Be I think because we have seen this this brand, which has nothing to do. I mean, I can't say nothing. Our band certainly has something to do with the success and the growth of the the brand of what Yacht Rock means. Because I think when we started, very few people knew what that term meant. Mm -hmm. And now, not only do people know what it means, more than likely they've had some sort of um, experience either seeing something on television or a movie or heard it used in a commercial Mm -hmm. or, you know, they're, they're more aware. So you don't have to explain what it is. And sell somebody on it, right? 
in order to get them to come experience your your band, which and, is and where we're it, making most of our money. It's live performance, right? Right. I mean, merchandise right. does really well. Yeah. And we're starting to generate other other products outside of just the realm of playing, you know, Michael McDonald or Kenya Loggins or all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, when you used to say yacht rock, people would, it's like you were speaking a foreign language. They were like, yacht, 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 like <laughs> yacht. Can you picture what a yacht is? Yeah, 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 rock. It's yacht rock. You know, there's lots of, there's blues rock, there's country rock. There's, but yacht, because it's a nautical thing, it has nothing to do with, or shouldn't with music, people like suddenly start spelling it out. And then you have to be like, well, it's basically AM gold. Now, if you're from a certain age group, you know what that is. Right. But anyway, millennials don't know what AM gold right, is. Right. So that doesn't do you any good. And that's what originally was going to be an AM gold tribute. And I said, everyone's sending me these Yacht Rock videos of like actors in LA playing different, you know, smooth rock icons. And they're getting into these arguments about, you know, who played on Thriller? Were they in Toto? Who has? What's the reason why this is a yacht rock song? So that the fact that that was popular, I was like, let's do that. Mm -hmm. And then it was just four years of just in the trenches in Atlanta, just playing, you know, in dive bars right. and building a brand until we got a booking agent. And then once the booking agent got involved, it was a different story because they're like, well, we work with Live Nation. Live Nation owns all the House of Blues is among nowadays just about everything. Yeah. So we can put you in venues. Where there's also whatever the biggest tribute is. For a while, it was like, who's bad? Everybody wanted to go see the Michael Jackson tribute. Mm -hmm. That's kind of a controversial topic now, the Michael Jackson thing. I don't know why. Suddenly, you know, like a documentary will come out and then everyone's like, ooh, you know, yeah. off limits. So I haven't seen as much of the like single artist tributes. What seems to be the thing now is tributes to a concept. Right. And that's our our society is very like iPhone swipe left, you know, well, I playlist. Wanted, I wanted to we're ask a play, you we're about a playlist, this. you know. Right, we're right. not if we just did a tribute to the Eagles or a tribute to Fleetwood Mac, which there are bands that do really well with that, mm -hmm. you're very pigeonholed and very limited to the venues and the uh, events that you can play. Mm -hmm. We are just a party because of the nature of if you don't like this song, you're going to like the next one. Sure. 100% of and the if, time. And if, if, if you do an artist tribute, you're, you're limited also to just that artist's music. Yeah. Whereas yeah. with a genre tribute, it's, I mean, it's almost endless. Sure, absolutely. You know? And the look, too, you have to decide if you're a Michael Jackson tribute, good luck having somebody who doesn't at least kind of embody one of his character looks. Sure. Do a look. Like Beatles tributes, it's also a tough thing not yeah. to have mop tops. You know, you can't just wear a t-shirt and jeans and go, we're going to play some Beatles songs. People right, but will call. But with us, it's what does a Yacht Rock artist look like? Right. I mean, polyester, sure. But that's very vague. You right. know, bell bottoms, that's I mean, you vague. Got, what, six guys in the band? Seven guys. Seven. So you me. can have yeah. seven seven different plays on Absolutely. Like, what that looks like. Sure. One is kind of like three-piece suity. It seems like you're kind of sporty like, yeah. with the headband and shit. It, after a while, I went for comfort. <laughs> I don't blame I'm getting older. I don't blame I'm starting you. to like at the, uh, I saw Ringo Starr doing a Skechers ad recently and I was like, oh God, he's also, and then I try, uh, you know, I was like, wait a minute, I put on some Skechers. I was like, these are really comfortable yeah. now. Do I, I want to wear them on and off stage? That's yeah. another question. Because right, right. I'm definitely a shoe whore. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, every year um, after getting the booking agent, uh, I would say like with a lot of trends, like take grunge, for example, I don't I think that the the ship has sailed if we were going to go through a grunge renaissance, meaning bands are going to dress up in like the flannels and then I mean I, I'm 90s absolutely we're seeing that right now. Yeah. Go to Urban Outfitters and just walk around and see what the clothes are. Right. And whatever that is, that's what 
the that's gonna die <laughs> because like they'll try like i remember in the 70s they were selling moccasins and my wife's like am i supposed to wear moccasins all of a sudden that was a very there was a you know there's always that little era where people want to go back to what their parents had in their closet that right. they've i'll never wear that again that's horrible and they want to dig it up and wear it to be hip you know because right. no one else is wearing this stuff yet and then once you see all the popular kids wearing it you're like well that's dead and there's a little bit of that where i thought this yacht rock thing it's going to be a passing joke and like people are going to kind of dress up as hollow notes for halloween costumes and then or maybe you know jimmy fallon had some yacht rock nights where he had the roots all wear captain's hats and then maybe he had michael mcdonald come on and they backed right. him up and did what a fool believes and it's like well that was fun that was cute what's the next thing let's do boy bands let's bring back right. the late 80s early 90s Yacht Rock has only not only not like d died down, it's as a trend and as a cultural impact, I feel like it keeps growing. Yeah. And so and your band keeps growing. It's provided more work for us, but I wonder how much does the success of our band, our seven guys and our relationship together and not treating it like a day job. Treating it like we chose this would this would be our original band. We would have written these songs. Somebody beat us to the punch, but this is what we were meant to do. At least the audience perceives it that way, and I think if we didn't and if we were hokey about it, and we were wearing matching costumes and fake mustaches, yeah. which is what a lot of the other tributes around the country do. Uh -huh. And most importantly, those guys are weekend warriors. No offense to weekend warriors if that's all you set out to do or that's all, unfortunately, you were able to achieve. Right. You have to have a nine-to-five day job. And then on the weekends, you can't wait to get together. And you said oh, wait a minute, this is a concept. This will book at our local sports bar. Mm -hmm. Let's do a Yacht Rock night. Yeah. And they go out and they buy matching costumes and the fake mustaches and they take it all off and they only put it back on. Like, I've started wearing some of my stage clothes around and I don't know what's wrong with me, <laughs> but it's like, you know, like, I'm starting to... It. Yeah, it's you're into I it. Yeah, I love it. And I know, and I watch <laughs> movies from the era. You know, I'll go back and watch Saturday Night Fever and I'll yeah. try to like, you know, some of our banter in between songs. We want people to think... Life is hard enough. You shouldn't be challenged when you come to a concert. Whatever, the, even if you want to go see Radiohead, the, you should walk away being entertained. Right. Even if you made made you think or made you want to buy the new album or not buy the new album, but either way, you should be posed with questions about what does this experience mean to me. And if you left and you were like, eh, then we didn't do our job. Right. And I think that that's kind of like what we're trying to do is create this like this time machine and once you get in it you're with us through this 70s thing until you leave again right you know that's, and that's part of i think our success as as you're talking about this i'm i'm just kind of realizing uh tell tell me if i'm wrong i i think of yacht rock review as it's not it's not a a 21st century tribute act to a 70s genre i mean it is it is that but sure. the way you guys approach it is like just from the perspective of someone in the audience, this could be like you mentioned the time machine. Like yeah. we're going back in time, and we're not seeing Hall and Oates. We're not seeing Seals and Croft per se. But you, you guys could be like a, a professional cover band from the seventies. Guys, True. guys yeah. who yeah. live in that era who are into that music. Right, you're not trying to look like those superstars. You're not trying sure. to dress up like them. You're yeah. just trying to like occupy that era that space well and most people probably never saw those artists right e even even people that were alive going to see other shows around that time you could see the doobie brothers mm -hmm. and you could sure you could see kenny longs but like somebody like for example say matthew wilder who we've been playing with quite a bit over the years we just got in touch with him through common musicians who said you know you know you should reach out to 
is Matthew Wilder. He's around and he's he did the soundtrack to Mulan and he's been doing other stuff and writing jingles and we're like, wow, do you think he'd do it? You know, and he's like, wow, I haven't performed really kind of ever because at the time, if MTV was a thing, you were more than likely even on all the variety shows you were lip syncing. Mm -hmm. So go back to YouTube and try to find, try to find a single clip where he's actually singing. I mean, you can't, half the time he's on stage with like three or four guys all standing playing synthesizers and there's no cables going to anything, you know? (laughs) And like nobody knew the difference. So it was very, the record labels were just looking for hits. That was kind of the beginning of that, I feel like, uh, of just, great if the whole album does well, but you know, we got this single. And so let's put you out on, on tour going to do these like variety shows and just doing this one song with guys that may or may not even have played on the record usually didn't so the likelihood of getting to see a lot of these songs performed live it's very rare so because of the nature of uh am gold and like one hit wonders like look at the guardians of the galaxy soundtrack i mean the whole thing are these like moments of songs that really you don't automatically know the name of the artist Mm -hmm. like Escape, the Pina Colada song. Maybe now people can say Rupert Holmes, but that's that's one of those things where it was a total fluke. And so we couldn't do a Rupert Holmes set. Right. But we can do his biggest song. Right. And then do somebody else like Brandy, You're a Fine Girl. That's Looking Glass. I mean, we've performed with Elliot Lurie, but to know that Elliot Lurie is still alive living in L.A. and that he was the singer in a band called Looking Glass that had one hit, Brandy, You're a Fine Girl. You know, to be able to do that, there's very, I don't know, there's very few examples I can think of where well, it's, you can put all speaking, these together. You're speaking of the fact, like you mentioned a playlist, like when it when it comes to this genre, people have a relationship with those songs sure. without having a relationship with the artist. Yeah. The way, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. the way people have a relationship with Prince or the way people have a relationship with Paul McCartney or That's the Beatles a good point. or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's it, like, you guys are anonymous. You know, you're not you're not trying to like do an impression of a particular artist or whatever. Um, and like you, so you guys in the 21st century in front of people are kind of anonymous and, but those songs are also anonymous. Yeah. Yeah. So it leaves a lot of space for you to kind of like fill a person's experience sure. in the moment. Um, and it's, it's, it's a really, it's a really cool thing that you've done. Like, like you said, you're, you're not putting on the fake mustaches. You're not, you're, you're neither hokey nor cynical. <laughs> yeah. About yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Right. You've you have to be tongue in cheek. problem at first is that you're really embarrassed to have uh, like touring musicians that, that we've met over the years who are, oh, hey, we're in Atlanta. I heard you guys are doing this weird tribute. You know, like years ago, people, we would, you know, oh, we'll put you on the list. You can come out and check it out. And we're always like, Butch Walker's in the audience. You know, like, what's he going to think about this? And they would come up afterwards, you know, like, well, I wanted to hate it, but the way that you guys are presenting this and the musicianship, it's there. Yeah. And, you know, we'll, or we'll get... Um, yeah, we saw, I don't want to say Steely Dan, but, well, you know, we saw Huey Lewis or we saw somebody last year at Chastain and they just, they felt like they didn't want to be up there and their band's kind of stale and they're playing everything really slow and they just, they did a three-minute version of my favorite one of their songs and they just got off stage. They played for four. I mean, I saw Hollow Notes at Chastain a few years ago and I was like, well, I don't need to see them again. They just, mm. it, 
all the melody that you want to sing along with those famous like classic Daryl Hall Philly soul lines. He just was kind of like tiptoeing around it and singing his own versions of it. And it's like, that's really tough if you know these songs and you've been singing with these songs in the shower yeah. and then you get to the gig and you can't sing along because it's just not the same melody. It's not right. the same phrasing. It's like, so what we've tried to do is like recreate these songs as close to what, the version that you love, why you want to hear this song. Right. You know, it's, I mean, granted, yes, we take artistic liberties and sometimes we're tired or we're overly energetic and so we might play things a little faster or slower but for the most part our aim is to do a studio version in a way that's going to make you so like wow this is you know we're able to enjoy this and not have to again overthink it like you've been working all week and you're coming out to escape from that reality and kind of like with everything going on in our society and all the things to stress out about we don't want it we want to we don't want to add to that we want right. to be an escape from that right and it's very much this music you know, it was like the reason I think punk came along to say, give the boot to disco was like, this is not real life. People aren't just going to like do coke and go to Studio 54 and dance their problems away. We have Reagan now and we've got some real serious <laughs> issues to deal with. Now, wake the fuck up, right, you know, right, like right. And let's get to let's get to work. Yeah. And uh, for me, this band is sort of like I'm going to put on my tracksuit and I'm going to go on stage. And I'm going to play Picaro shuffles all night. I'm hopefully not going to think about Trump once during this <laughs> this this experience. Right. I mean, it happens. Right, right. But, you know, my thing is, is if, I, if we can be like that, then hopefully the audience can be like that. Yeah. And hopefully we can just live in that bubble as long as we can. You know, it's like trying to get my kids to continue to believe in uh, as many magical ways of thinking about life <laughs> as they can. Because it'll get hard enough soon. Yeah. And, and childhood is getting reduced to... And now there's tweens. It's like, no, 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 no. You're a kid and then you're a teenager. Right. Don't create a new category to justify cell phone usage. Like, they're not going to get one. Let them practice and play, you know, practice drums, play football in the backyard, run around, do stupid stuff that doesn't involve being plugged into the 24-7 news cycle. Right. And that's kind of what our band's trying to be like. This was, the, there weren't even VHS. Like, VHS hadn't even really come out yet. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're, we're like, maybe we're in VHS and we're starting to approach Laserdisc. <laughs> that's as far as technology gets. Like, the first, my dad had one of those giant briefcases that had a phone on it, you know, like, that he took in the car. Right, right. And that made him feel important, like, that the first cell phone you know like that we want to be everything before that technology existed because i i don't know it's just harkens back to a time where if that's what was on the radio baby come back you know and you were like oh turn it up right what else was going on in your life i'm just trying to picture maybe john mayer is that a little bit today you yeah know? i know there are people who probably think that they're that <laughs> maybe jack johnson or uh i don't know some of the the more like strummy kind of feel good dave uh -huh. matthews band with you know like musicianship is featured there are some other artists that are trying to do that or maybe uh thundercat like great smooth fender roads lines and like you know yeah. great musicianship and the, but as far as like a, a, an era where studio musicians are the the main ticket i don't know that we'll ever be able to see that yeah, again. I think it's I think, over. I think that ship has sailed no it's pun definitely intended. over i mean the <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh yeah, I mean some of the some of the legendary cats are still you know alive and well doing yeah. what they do, like yeah. Kenny Aronoff or, or whoever else. But I mean even even they've had to change their business model. 
And, yeah. And, well, and, and you know, Instagram. I mean, yeah. I don't know how many of them really enjoy doing it, or if they get done, they're like, oh god, not again. I think it's like any other group of people. I think some of them take to it really naturally and enjoy it, and yeah. and some of them, uh, it's kind of a chore. And they, oh, I see you know. on like uh, planes. I see the, the older demographic people, my parents' age, or around you know, in their seventies. Um, I see just as many people scrolling through Facebook. Yeah. Um, because you know, if you're an empty nester and you, your life was about scheduling and getting your kids off to practice and doing all this stuff and suddenly you're just at home right. all the time and you want to stay in touch with what your friend's, you know, potato soup recipe is, yeah. you know, you can find that on Facebook. Well, I mean, it speaks to the great paradox of social media. Like it's it's supposed to connect us all and what it's doing is disconnecting us all absolutely yeah. uh it's yeah. well and that's the whole like strategy you know it's like i'm just gonna keep liking everything and then if somebody disagrees with me they're gone right. you know that's not the way the real world should work yeah we should not be afraid to knock on our neighbor's door and go hey i saw you had the, the political ad for somebody that i don't support you know convince me like right. let's have a, a sane conversation about this that's just we're so quick to just want to build a box and, yeah. or a wall and not have anybody else in that and our opinion is right and i'm only going to talk to people who agree with me mm -hmm. and the, but the same thing happens musically like if you if you follow you know the wrong people on instagram you start to get an idea of what it's like to play music for a living sure or what yeah, good, yeah what good drumming sounds like or you know, because that's a completely subjective thing. But if if you if you let Instagram fill up your feed and your brain with a bunch of the same shit, yeah. no matter what it is, then it's it's like you know people talk about political silos, sure, on on uh, social media. But I, there are definitely musical silos. There are definitely drumming silos where you're just like the same thing is being pumped into your brain and your ears. Um, yeah, and I start to see repeat things where like, uh, and I can tell this is where the synergy is going in a place where I'm like, oh man, I have to, I've come to a crossroads where a drummer that you follow, you know, seems to be featuring a symbol line, a headline, a stick line, something, you know, in the post. And then like later in the day, a few, you know, you scroll down, a few posts later, it's like that drum company has just shared that person's video, you right. know, and so... Now, how many more followers did that person just get through that? So what is that? I mean, that feeds your ego to the point where you're like, well, now I need to do this more often. Yeah. So now all of the companies I follow are starting to share that same drummer's thing to where I'm seeing basically like just this constant cycle of like that's the, the game. same stuff. And that's what they want. Right. But uh, like you said, I think you have to kind of be selective and maybe weed through and I try to every once in a while weed through to let new stuff come in um, because for everybody who is a gospel chops drummer nothing against that but that's obviously encouraging some kids like if you're an athlete I just want to be the best person at dunking well dunking is one aspect of basketball but there's right. also passing and there's <laughs> defense and there's all this other stuff yeah. that you have to, used to have to have every skill set to play and now if you've got this one thing and you do it the best, that that mentality of I'm going to get my video reshared, right. if I just strive to do that, then you've got guys like Nate Smith who can clearly do all the chopsy stuff, mm -hmm. but they play a smaller kit. They focus more on backbeat and pocket, and, and you can see the stuff he does with Fearless Flyers. And I'm like, I'm inspired by that, but would 16, 17-year-old, when I'm making my first decision of 
what drum kit do I want to buy? What cymbals do I, like, you know, my dad's right. going to help for, you know, my first drum set, kick in some money and I have to really decide here. What were the things at that time? Maybe it was modern drummer. I mean, I was reading a lot of yeah, magazines. Totally. Uh, Cause there was no online stuff. Yeah. Uh, that's how old I, not to date how old, but this I, is, but, this is know. the, this is the game. Like co- drum companies used to have to pay a lot of money to outlets like modern drummer to get their products in front of eyeballs. And now they the get drummers it. are doing it themselves. A lot of times if they're doing it correctly, they get it and the companies get it for free and good on them. Like I'm not yeah. throwing shade at it, but that's the new model. Like the, the new model is for companies to have their endorsers and their devotees share shit on social media. And oftentimes people like the production value on them is great. Yeah. It's not just some phone video of like, hey, here's my setup or whatever. It's like a multi-cam, multi-tracked, <laughs> you know, and, and if you're sitting at Sabian or, or uh, Yamaha or whatever, you're like, wow, instant ad, minute, yeah. minute long, high yeah. production value. That would have cost us thousands of dollars, but this dude just did it in an afternoon. <laughs> Absolutely. You know? Yeah, and I, you know, I, I feel like there's a balance, just like with everything. Yeah, you yeah. know, where you can, you can certainly add your voice to that, especially if it's your voice, and you're not just cutting and pasting somebody else's, you know, model onto your own and expecting what well, worked for them is going to work for me. I think you have to kind of still figure out a way to make it individually, which is hard yeah. to come up with your own identity. Uh, it used to be. You know, well, if I play rock, here are the drummers I idolize. And you're going to hear some of, you know, John Bonham and every rock drummer's playing. Yeah. You know, it's impossible not to, you know, you can say, well, I, I'm not really a big Cream fan. And so maybe you didn't really listen to a lot of Ginger Baker growing up. But, like, it's kind of hard to escape the impact of somebody like Bonham in the rock world. And right. you can say that probably for most major genres. You can, you know, list like with the Yacht Rock stuff, I can probably list 40 drummers who played on a lot of this record, these records over time because some of them maybe were just the drummer for a band. Right. Uh, like the drummer played for the Bee Gees, an amazing drummer. He didn't do a lot of stuff outside of of that in terms of the way that Picaro or Keltner. Yeah. You know, you start talking about like the classic 70s studio drummers, uh, you know, Russ Kunkel. Like those guys, you know, st- you can obviously mention them, and maybe my mom knows who they are. Maybe they're enough of a household name. Uh, but certainly when you say Ringo right, or you know, you say Bonham or Keith Moon, you're, people are going to know who that person is. It's hard to go through life without being right. aware of that. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, but still, I, it's hard not to, I don't know, to find your voice. Wh- who is Mark Cobb on drums? Like what, what, and if a sense of humor, which is very important to me in life, uh, to put into my drumming, yeah. Without being apologetic about it, without like, I'm not saying drumming is a joke, but I'm saying I have an outlet to use timing, physical humor, uh, slapstick, comic. I have, I can do that on the drum kit, right. you know. And it's showmanship. And knowing when, when to do that is a harder challenge. Yeah. And when, like, I might think something's kind of funny, and I look around, and nobody in the, on stage. Or in the crowd is laughing. <laughs> you know, sometimes you can keep trying to tell the joke over and over until somebody goes, oh, I see what he's doing. Right. You know, but on private events, especially like if there's just nobody there and you're playing some big corporate thing and there's 300 people in the back of a ballroom and everybody on stage is like, just, ugh, God, we got another hour left. Me being a little bit, you know, like musically telling some jokes that only uh, uh, an inside joke we get that makes the time go by really quick. Everybody's like, thanks for having some energy tonight because you could have just phoned it in too. Yeah. And then, you know, the crowd doesn't care. But 
for us, it just made it more entertaining, you know, and I, I try to take that into social media. I try to take that into, I mean, it's a fine line, but like, I've always loved uh, The Muppet Show and Steve Martin and stand-up comedians. My dad had all the Robin Williams records. Yeah, I mean, yeah. comedy was right there interlaced with almost everything musically that I was introduced to from a young age. And I think, uh, I don't know, that's always been something to me that uh, helps pass the time more than even social media. It's just seven guys in a van after a while you know, you're going to broach certain topics you're not going to in front of your wives. Right. <laughs> and we can kind of use that humor. And then hopefully if there's a moment to, to have some levity um, or some brevity on stage and like uh, we can kind of let the audience in on this is something happening right now that's funny, you know, like, I, I don't know. I think that makes the shows more unique than we have these songs prepared. We're going to do them the exact same way every single time. Right. Um, so, I, you know, I, I can't say enough about trying to find the humor and be able to laugh at yourself especially mm -hmm. um, instead and most, of taking everything so personally and getting so jaded and angry I see a lot of people who are like this sound guy and this lighting guy and how dare this club treat us like this and that's not a green room and this hotel manager and that I could find something wrong with everything if I wanted to. Yeah, and that's yeah. the, I think that's the hardest thing about it is to realize we're very lucky. Yeah. It's, Do you know how many people would love to have this job? Oh, my God. And yet you're going to just waste so much energy on com complacency. Right, um, right. And just darkness and cynicism. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Because it's out there all the time. Yeah, right? But yeah. finding some silver lining or humor or whatever it is has been like really, I think, uh, a testament to why I'm still here more than anything and my kids keep me real because i come home and they just i could have had like sold out chastain right you know and and come home and like you know they're just like hey what's for lunch right you know <laughs> maybe one day they'll get that but i kind of like that they don't yeah you know, they they keep me from feeling like if i do not that i would have a big head about <clears throat> what we do but um you know if i wanted to start getting a little bit more like i deserve to be treated a certain way because of who i am and what i've earned in this business you know the kids are never and my wife too is just sort of like i'm you know i'm glad you this is great I'm really excited for you now the grass needs to be cut <laughs> you know right, like right. i like that that well, is welcome home dad yeah nobody cares nobody cares <laughs> yeah welcome to la welcome home yeah. welcome to instagram <laughs> it's, uh, our guitar players uh, saying is uh never do anything ever you know because it's like as soon as he leaves he gets a flat tire he's like i shouldn't have left the house well that's kind of a miserable way of living <laughs> but the more i think about it every time something goes wrong he's like oh, i shouldn't have left the house you know never do anything ever it's <laughs> a very safe way i guess to live until somebody finds your decomposing corpse because right. you live alone <laughs> <laughs> Cats are trying to get out to get food. <laughs> you mentioned a couple of the drummers of the era. Yeah. Um, were you were you into these guys? And this genre, like, before Yacht Rock, did you recognize... I mean, you, you mentioned, like, you started hitting all the clubs in Atlanta. Um, and, you know, you you started this band, you, you started this project, obviously, because you're all into the music. Sure. Um, but what kind of drumming life were you leading before that? And was this kind of... Was, was the Yacht Rock drumming and that whole genre kind of a left turn for you? Or was that more of what you were aiming for in the first place yeah it's it's, it's bizarre in that um i think you know as far as what i remember growing up 
there were kind of two categories of vinyl and I own most of them now so I can actually look through and verify that you know my dad listened to stuff that he liked which was a little more bombastic rock music mm -hmm. Zeppelin who like the big stadium rock of the time but then I think in order to appease my mom he listened to Carole King Tapestry I just did that record yeah. with 18 oh that's collected. right yeah that was so cool yeah so you know you've got these amazing like Brill building kind of like the, like the songwriters like the the, yeah. the the Neil the Neil uh uh, Diamond, all the guys that were writing in there that, that you know put out what now is kind of considered you know adult contemporary or right. easy listening or whatever. Um, but you know the, the 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 studio musicians that were playing on all those singer songwriter records yeah. at the time, uh, you know James Taylor. If you go back and listen to the rhythm sections of Lee Sklar and Russ Kunkel and some of the guys playing on those records, it's so tasty and everybody so knows cool. Fire and Rain and some yeah. of those songs. But like if you really dig deep. And listen to uh, in the pocket or gorilla some of those records all the way. It's just right. like so that's what you're going up with. Like, like that, I always listen to a lot of that. That yeah. clean craft, absolutely style of playing. Steely Dan, where you may have done 200 drum takes, right? And it, and the first one was perfect, right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. But they, that's just that defeats the purpose. We've, yeah, we've got all this money from the label. We've got all the studio time. I want to make sure that every time he hits this rack tom that it's absolutely sonically perfect so from know? a from a young age uh like that was kind of your your north star just that that kind of clean craft pocket groove but mixed with the bombastic you know ridiculous kind of big huge moby dick level right. drum sounds right. you know so oftentimes it was hard for me to decide which one you know if i if you have to decide what you want to try to follow i yeah. think the the big thing for me was listen to everything yeah even if it's stuff that i feel like death metal or 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 super contemporary uh uh christian music or or uh country uh -huh. you know of the time like there are certain genres that get a bad word until people actually listen to it and go oh ghost that's this genre. Oh, I like this. You're like, well, then you like, you know, are like, well, I like Sturgill Simpson, but I don't like country music. Well, yes, Sturgill Simpson is a throwback to more of what was the classic model of country. And uh -huh. he doesn't sound like, you know, Luke Bryan or stuff that's on maybe on the right. radio. But, but, you know, but I list, I tried to listen to literally everything to decide why I liked it or didn't like it, as mm -hmm. opposed to just immediately just looking at somebody and going this i'm gonna hate this because he's wearing a backwards baseball cap mm -hmm. you know or like limp biscuit or rap rock was not one of my at the age where i was when that came out it was not for me anyway right, right. but it was very easy for me to dismiss it but every once in a while then a band comes along like rage against the machine which is kind of rap rock yeah. you know what i mean in its approach uh, and it's you know dissonant, but like some of the beats, it's hard to describe. And you you go, well, this is amazing. Or Nine Inch Nails. I don't listen to a lot of stuff that sounds like Nine Inch Nails, but I love that approach to music. So I think what I've tried to do over time is just not be afraid to like, could I even play this? Like right. I'm gonna put on this record, even though I never perform with other musicians. Could I play this song or this? Uh, the, the technique required to play 30 second notes at this tempo can I do right. that and, and take that away from it's it it's not always even 30 second notes like it's it, so many so many styles uh, whether it's a specific band or, or just kind of a genre are deceptively difficult sure just yeah. to get the you know the flavor the inflection the swing or try to play like Ringo like try right. to play getting better you know and make it have this sort of loosey goosey 
it's in time, but it's sort of falling apart. Right. Kind of weird approach. To I it. like I like the concept you were talking about of just like listening to something and saying like a, a like why do I like this or why do I not like this? But but just kind of like it's like taking apart an old radio. Like how does this work? Sure. What is this made yeah. of? Yeah, how yeah. did how did he achieve these sounds? How did well? He... Then you may know where it came from too. Like right. why does this style of music? Why does bluegrass have very little drum kit in it? You know what's providing the momentum and the rhythm and the right. syncopation if it's not from the drums. Yeah, yeah. A lot of times when I burn out from being on the road and listening to music or playing music, I try to listen to stuff with no drumming. Like Bill Frizzell's Nashville record is mm. amazing. And when you put it on this time of year, it just feels like leaves changing colors. Yeah, it just yeah. feels like you can smell a campfire. You know, it's got and it's there's something kind of warm about that and like I don't have to think about it's hard for me to turn off the drum brain, you know. Yeah. Not pay attention to the drumming and, and analyze it. Right. Um so, you know, I think Coming back to your question about you know where Yacht Rock, if I, if I thought I was ever going to do that, um, because I had listened to so many of those records and I had practiced Picaro grooves or I had practiced you know playing different types of uh, studio music, um, studio just being that I listen to live records too, and the mm-hmm. way that you approach playing a live gig, or at least the way I think you should, is different because you're playing in front of a crowd and the person sitting in the balcony, if it's a large enough venue, like Chastain, for example, in the lawn, are they going to hear? I mean, so this is a very technical question to have to do with microphones and sound guys and all of the stuff that go into it. But like, are you going to hear all the little grace notes and how much am I not able to really play at the volume or the intensity if I'm trying to get every grace note of Lido shuffle in there like does that matter more than the energy that i'm putting into conveying that song to a crowd of eight thousand right, people right. so you know like thinking about a, that this is, is a, a dilemma that i think a lot of drummers face particularly drummers <clears throat> like you who are in a group that's like a tribute act or just pointing at a very specific thing even as as specific as pointing to a like a, a specific recording yeah because i think drummers have more knowledge at our fingertips and more technique uh and more methods to manipulate our sounds we should right yeah um so, so when you're talking about a song like that you know there's there's the balance of like how how much do i adhere to the sound of that record versus is everything on that record going to work for this venue I'm at right now? Yeah. And yeah. this sound system and just like the circumstances I'm facing right Absolutely. now. Well, and, and if you ha- if you don't have a choice of I'm going to adjust these little things in my technique or my playing or, or whatever, then I think in some ways that has to be a relief to some people. And so if, if you, as long as you're not challenged by it where you're like, I really wish I had five ways of playing this. Right. But I don't. I have one. I don't know how many people just go, I know one way of doing this, and that's the way I'm going to do it. I'm going to commit to it. Mm -hmm. There has to be a certain amount of solace in that because a lot of times I'm like, I really want to bring these grace notes out right now, but my hands are so tired after playing four or five days and all the travel in between that. So I'm just... And then I'm going to let that bother me a little bit when I play the next song. And I, I, I know that I, I'm in a smaller venue where they can hear those. Right. I just didn't have it today. So, you know, it doesn't matter. Yeah, you just I'm gotta, probably the only one that's really even thinking about it at the time. Right, you right. Know, so but, you, you got to make decisions to just put the best performance possible for that moment, for absolutely. that room. Yeah. You know, if like there, there have been some times when I've... I've wanted to like throw a big fat snare drum on there to, yeah, to get yeah, that yeah. sound, but it just doesn't project enough 
you know, especially if I'm it, like, you know, if all I have is a kick mic, if I'm playing a wedding or something. Oh, true. You know, like I want that that deep snare sound, but it's just it's not cutting through the band. It's not given the punch that the dancers need or whatever. Yeah, so I'm like, and you well, don't have a drum tech back there with all your snares to hand you one <laughs> right. between every song. I've always seen that and been like, oh, that's why they do that. Yeah, yeah that would be really nice. Yeah, so you gotta make, <laughs> you gotta make those calls at, at game time. Yeah. Um, but so speaking of the sounds. Sometimes, like when you're in town, you play your kit, which we'll talk about in a minute. Sure. But you play a lot of backline kits. Absolutely. And a lot of the sounds on your uh, set list are pretty specific. Yes. So, so how do you go about kind of getting as close to the, you can, as close to those sounds as you can with, you know, backline kit? X? Well, I, yeah, I think it starts with making sure that when you put together a list of backline gear that you want first of all price is obviously a huge part of that so if the client says here's our budget only so much of that can go to drums and if you want a yamaha recording custom and you want all zildjian k's or whatever it is that has a price attached to it and so subtract that from everything else and then are you not going to have a Nord for your keyboard player so they have to play something that doesn't have all the sounds they want to use? No, that's... So now you just went down to the next line and everything, you know? Right. So I think in a you know perfect world, you're going to have clients that are willing to, to muscle up the dough for what you want. Yeah. That being said, you know, there are some kits where at the time it sounds like if I normally play Ludwig and I want a Ludwig kit, does that mean that's still going to be the Ludwig kit that I want for this gig versus... Maybe I don't like playing DW kits, but they've got 20 at this backline, this SIR in LA. Yeah. And that probably would have been a better kit had I just, you know, thought like what's... So I think kind of knowing how backline companies work and what your best chances are of getting the kit that you want. But, you know, that being said, once you kind of like know what sizes and what configurations you want, I think it has more to do with tuning and muffling. Uh, for any specific given you know event that we do, I can usually, and I at first felt guilty about this because I'm like, somebody else is going to have to put this back together, <laughs> but I'll just take all the bottom heads off. Uh. And then once you do concert toms on a kit, like before I owned a concert tom kit, that's what I did to most of the kits when I'd go out and play Yara kicks. I just pulled the bottom heads off. Right. And then once the Big Fat Snare Drum rings came out, before that I was using duct tape. Yep. You know, where I was using uh, lots of uh, big of the uh, moon gels. You know, I think that there's always been some product to do the dampening thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and once you get everything tuned and, and muffled the right way, I mean, most kits are going to work the way that I want them to. Right. Uh, but you know, just knowing that I want darker symbols, listing whatever manufacturers they may have, listing the dark brand. You know, yeah. The HH if they're going to be Sabians or you know, knowing like. That whatever I get, it's going to be closer to what I play than if I just go, oh, I don't care, just give me whatever. Because right. I've had some stuff where I get really bright or just, you know, drums that are way too loud and ringy. So you don't even take your own cymbals with you? Most of the time I don't. Wow. I just like the fact that if somebody else is going to bring everything and walk away with everything, <laughs> right. like, I'm right. Can you always, bring sticks too? Like, <laughs> I'm playing a four-piece kit on this last, like, you know, half a dozen gigs I've done because uh, they were going to go down to Miami and then go all the way up east and I had a guy subbing for me on one of the days I couldn't make and he was like can I just use because I'm flying into Jacksonville can I just play your kit I'll bring my snare and cymbals I was like don't even worry about that just play all my stuff 
But I also thought, like, that's a daunting task, setting up a seven-piece concert tom kit. And, like, maybe you don't even want to play it, even if you do set it up. Right. So I was like, for the, the the gigs leading up to, and so, because there won't be backline there, and for the gigs after, I'm fine playing a smaller kit. But I still am the last person tearing my stuff down through the night. And we have a small skeleton crew that helps, but they've got lots of things to do, tearing down merch, right. packing up the PA, all that stuff that I'm just sort of like. And I also like to open up my case and not have everything like all the wing nuts all taken apart of you know from everything the people that don't used to tearing down drum gear like no just collapse it right you don't have to take every single piece out you know yeah, so yeah. I stay up there out of a control freak nature right um, and and on backline dates if I don't have to do that you know I I've had a couple that have backfired in terms of some of the symbols and stuff but for the most part my tuning and muffling and ability to like kind of pick the right symbols and 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 stuff for for what my requests are have been pretty on par for yeah uh for what for what I and I like every once in a while there'll be a ride symbol that's not something that I own right and it's not something that I've played yet and I've heard people talk about it and then I actually hit it and maybe it's like that's junk I'm glad I didn't shell out the money mm-hmm. on that but other times I'm like wow that's exactly what I've been looking for yeah. and then I can't tell you how many symbols I own because I've played them enough times on backline kits where I'm like, okay, that symbol's awesome. Well, yeah, it's interesting. It's like it's test driving a car and not necessarily it's, buying it. It's kind of the same philosophy as just listening to all kinds of different music and all kinds of different drummers and just being like, do I like this or do I not like this? Why or why not? What's yeah, it made of? Yeah. How did this sound happen? And if you expo- the more you expose yourself to that, the more kind of points of reference you'll have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's times where I've been surprised and been like, I can't believe I've been, you know, like bad mouthing this. <laughs> it's actually really great when right. you play. But that also, I mean, it comes with the heads that it's got on it. And most of the time, I will say the bigger companies will change out the heads brand new, which isn't always a good thing to have brand new heads that you spend the entire gig just bringing back up to right. to the right, right. You know, playable pitch. Or they're just singing for like yeah. four yeah. seconds. And I'm like, uh, Ugh. but or. We're in a, a glass, huge, big banquet hall, and it doesn't matter. I played my own kit; it would have sounded like garbage. Right. So there's there's a lot of factors that I think when you first you have to take into consideration and not judge everything on an equal playing field. Right. You know, you have to kind of go, well, I wish I would have seen what this would have sounded like in Eddie's attic or City Winery or wherever right. place that you've played often enough to know the way it should sound. Right. But um, there's just game time decisions. Yeah. Like you have to prioritize. But if we're late. And the company's there, and they've already got the gear out and on set up on stage. I'll be like, "Hey, can you tell the uh, the drum guy to pull all the bottom drum heads off?" And they used to kind of kind of go like, "Why?" But now they'll hear it and like, "Oh, okay," because that takes out one whole set of tuning. Right now, you're just tuning one plank surface, you know, yeah. and also the, just muffling just, one yeah, plank muffling surface. the shit out of it. Yeah, um, I remember a couple of years ago, you uh, you were really excited because you had found like your head combo. Oh, your, yeah, I remember. <laughs> so talking you've to you got about this. That. You've got this Gretsch. Concert Tom kit. What year is it? Well, I mean, it, it it was it was built in the last decade. I mean, it, okay, so it, it's it's a uh, Steve Maxwell who has a shop in Chicago and a shop in New York. Um, I think you know he loves really high end boutique drums, but he also likes getting era specific kits. Like, I want the kit that was known for you know the Tony Williams uh, right. yellow drums or you know and a lot of times i think he has no intention of selling them right. they just sit on his showroom floor to get people to come in there and look and ganesh texted me a link to this drum kit that was sitting on the warehouse floor that was just online for sale and i don't even know if there was a real it might have been kind of like a go away price 
and it was it was that Gretsch concert time kit. No hardware, no cymbals, nothing. It was just the kit set up. He's like, well, you know, this is what you need for for yacht rock. And I'm like, oh, you're right. And then we were maybe a month away from Christmas, and I thought, this is a real dick move if I buy this kit for myself for a Christmas <laughs> present. But yet, maybe this won't come around again. Right. You know, and really what it reminded me of, it's a Gretsch kit, and it looks like what Phil Collins, I mean, it was granted I, I'm not left-handed, but if you look at the pictures of the white, right. you know, concert tom kit that he played, it, it very much kind of resembled. And if you play it with open tuning yeah. and real big, when I first set it up, I was doing like in the air tonight on, I was like, oh, that's it. <laughs> Yeah. You know, and in my garage. But then I bring that up the stage and it's just taking over all the sonic territory. Right. And and so I quickly was like, Well, I need some deader heads. So but yours yeah. yours is a, and that is was a the, it's a replica. It's not it like is a, a, made with older hardware except for the rims mounts. But like the bass drum, you know, cloth, everything that's on it. In some ways, I've had to retrofit it for taking on the road. But right. it, that's why I say it probably should have stayed on the showroom floor. Like, it's, <laughs> all, all this stuff on it is made to look era specific. Yeah. You know, so it looks like an uh, an early 70s. It does. It really, it's amazing. Kit. So you, you came to me and you were like, man, I'm running. Uh, Aquarian, <laughs> Aquarian deep vintage twos. Yes. with the big fat snare drum donut. I was yeah. like, does that make any sound <laughs> at all? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is there any tone whatsoever? Right. Is it just like hitting a phone book? Right. And that's I've had some issues with my my left wrist, and I'm I'm thinking a lot of it's because I've just been letting those rings live on there for years now. Once I I, I got hooked up with the big fat snare drum stuff, like just I known. wonder if it's like the guys that used to play like you know some of the pads that were with various you know if you were playing like a Simmons kit and yeah. really try to play those for a whole gig it's just murder yeah. on 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 the shock that you're getting off of the stick from into your wrist and absorbing I feel like I can see why you know the jazz drummers who Billy Cobb and some of those guys are still playing like they're playing open ringy you know yeah. kit and they don't have to hit as hard to create a huge sound right. and uh, and for me I mean granted yes the microphones are doing their job and sound guys love the dead kit because they don't have to EQ out ring or tone or weird frequencies right. it's like you have doom 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 and they're like done kit, kit full of kick drums yeah and, and as long as I'm playing <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm playing that kit sound granted we have our own sound guy but like I spend next to no time having anybody wait around for me to get my drums sounding good in a the room. They're, right. they're pretty much, you know, it's going to be that dead thing. And then if they want to add gated reverb for a specific sound, yeah. they can do that. It's hard to do that to a drum that requires so much extra work, fine-tuning all of the ringing and frequencies mm -hmm. that are associated with sure. a jazz-sounding kit. So, uh, But, yeah, that uh, that that made me laugh when I came in because I was like, I want a dead head. And you're like, but don't you use the rings? You use the rings and that head and their concert toms? <laughs> I was like, oh, wow, yeah, I probably seem a little, like, going way overboard with, with that. But, you know, when we we had a gig coming back off the road where I had that kit, and it was like, let's do a tribute to Zeppelin and the Who, which we do every once in a while, at Bankman's. And I was right. like, you know what? I'm just going to use this kit. I have the, the reissued Amber Vistalite John Bonham kit. Like, why wouldn't I play that? And normally I would uh, for those gigs, but I, I – just took all the rings off and just played it open and kind of you know tuned it a little differently closer to uh, what bottom would have sounded like and it actually worked surprisingly yeah. well uh, for songs like Fool in the Rain where they have these big you know tom fills and stuff that maybe he wasn't doing on some of the earlier you know I mean he played like four fame legendary kits right. that were his you know signature thing over the years it right. wasn't always 
just the big vista light. That's what he did towards the end, which is what people remember. Mm-hmm. But even like you can go back and look at um, shots of Keith Moon, and he had a clear like vista light where it was a it was a uh, acrylic kit, and he had regular double headed toms, and then above that he had concert toms. Right, I remember that. So, so he would play. You know, I think people forget when that was a thing. Like there were a lot of drummers incorporating concert toms into their into their kits. Right. And and the thing that I blew my mind about just that from the the sixties and seventies in general, like a lot of them tuned their drums pretty high. Like yes, it, yeah. I mean, you listen to Bonham or Mitch Mitchell. It's like that. They're they're jazz sounds. Like, Absolutely, and they're beating the shit out of them. Like yeah, their bomb, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know, their tell. bombastic style makes you think of like big deep toms. Right, but, but that's if you not just, always the case. Right, if you just zero in on the toms, they're like, wow, it just it sounds kind of like a big band kit. Yeah, you well, know? it's like Bonham, you know, huge big kick drum sound, but he cranked that thing right. like a marching drum almost, like right. he really had it up high. Um, so you know, you just think like, well, there's just one way to get this thing to happen, but so much of it is the touch too, it's yeah. the player, and you know what they put into it. And the other challenge with a, a gig like yours is, is you know, obviously not all the drum sounds on all those songs are the same. So your drum sound for yeah, a that, gig has to be kind of an amalgam of like that era. Sure. You know? Yeah, and that's why I have the, the the rolling pad too. Is that some of the sounds I just it would require way too much extra stuff. Right. Not to mention the inputs it would take for mics that we just don't have. Right. We're maxed out on. Um, we oftentimes have a three piece horn section and two piece background vocals, and so even though we might not have those every night, they're not going to dedicate one of those to me off and on because in that event where then we need that full lineup, that has to go away. So I have to know I'm working with the most. Even with the concert toms, they're splitting one mic between four of the rack. One on two and another on oh, two. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I was like, can I not? I can tell in my ears, my inner monitors, like when I go to do fills, the floor tom is so present. Yeah. And those other two, I think I'm overcompensating and hit a little bit harder so they sound right in my ears. Right. And even our, you know, our sound guy was like, I don't hear the, some of the fills get lost. And I'm mm-hmm. like, well, then why do I even bother putting all this attention <laughs> to detail if it just sounds muddy out there? Right. So I think that's, you know, they'd have to upgrade their console to have more inputs if they wanted to incorporate direct mics for every single tom. And back then, you have to think there's no way every single drum. I mean, at a certain point in the 70s, sure. But when you go back, you know, earlier, a lot of times you just had a couple overheads. Yeah. And that sounded great. Yeah. That's part of the sound, too, in the era, you know. They used to put the mics right up underneath inside. You can see yeah. the Sennheisers that you put right up underneath. Like Everyone's like, why don't you do that? And I'm like, come on. <laughs> yeah, all those were on stands, too. <laughs> right. So now you have all those stands to take along with us yeah, and yeah. set up. Nobody has the time for that. Right. Maybe one day. That's Those are the things that when you're like, you know, every year that goes by, like, yeah, I want to get ridiculous with some of this stuff. It's like, what can we do to make this fun for ourselves? And hopefully the crowd has fun with those things that we've done. Uh, we're getting ready to take video screens out, which we've cool. never done. So then it's like, well, what's going to be on those video screens? So we've tapped some of our friends who've gone to SCAD and done projects for us over the years and now have full-time you know, jobs creating content. We're like... Here, you know, here's our thing, and they know exactly what to do with it. So yeah, and that's original content. Now that's another thing that you can do. That like, you know, those video screens aren't going to be showing videos of Hall and Oates. 
Right. Like, it's not going to be specific stuff, but it's going to be, be unique to us. Yes, it's yeah. going to be tailored to you and just evocative of the whole genre and aesthetic and. And the original thing is a big part of that too, is that we have a record coming out in February, right? Of our own songs that we recorded while our singer was in basically kind of lockdown mode with his wife. They're having their second child. Oh wow! And we all have stories of I missed this, I missed this, I missed this. Like missing the birth of a child is not one of the ones that you want on there. Yeah. And a lot of us have been really close. Like I had Gadsen, who you teach lessons to. I had him, and I don't know if it was even a week. I think it was six days later. I left for the Kid Rock cruise. Wow. It was his first cruise ship. I think he's on like nine or ten. Now. Well, yeah, Gatson's nine. So um, he's your oldest, right? Yeah, he's the oldest. So my wife said, uh, you know, I know this is a big deal for you. This was, I think, the second cruise we had ever done, first or second cruise. And um, she's like, I just asked that you. And I don't know why this was what you wanted. She's like, here's a onesie. Here's one of his white cotton blank onesies. I want Kid Rock to sign it, <laughs> so you can later say this is the reason why. You know, I. Got her home from the hospital, made sure he was like all, you know, tucked in. And then I was on a plane to right. I think Miami or wherever. And so uh, I met Kid Rock and he was actually surprisingly really cool and really down to earth. It's sort of like he plays this character for his fan base. Yeah. But yeah. then behind the scenes, he's not like the, the rap, rap, rock country, whatever, chameleon right. guy that you want to be. Dude. He's just a dude. And he yeah. was just like, wanted to hang out and chill with the rest of the musicians. He blocked off this little area. We all came up there and we're hanging out. And I was like, man, this is weird. But I just had my first child and my wife wanted you to sign this onesie. He's like, oh, that's not weird. I signed babies before. And I was like, oh, of course you have. <laughs> so I got, I got a picture with him and I got our like our credentials and I got the, the signed onesie and we have it framed outside of my son's room. And he's always like, who's that? Right. You know, like, couldn't it have been somebody cool? Right, you know, like, right. but I think hopefully later as he gets more aware of all the, the little weird kind of subgenres and stuff that we've come into contact with. Because again, like, why is Yacht Rock on a Kid Rock cruise? Right. Well, because nothing else is going to be Yacht Rock on that Kid Rock cruise. Mm-hmm. And when we started playing, it was a lot of like Harley Davidson driving. Just like people who have gotten way too much sun exposure, you know, strippers <laughs> who used to have the tats up higher that have now sunk down lower. Right, like right. there were a couple of actual. I kept recognizing this girl. Like where have I seen her? Oh yeah, she was like a, an '80s vivid porn star. She, <laughs> there's a literal porn star hanging out in his like entourage right. off to the side, and just so weird. And I'm like, I don't know if they're gonna want to hear. You know, some of these 70s soft rock tunes. But we launched into, I think it was like What a Fool Believes, like second or third tune in the set. And some old dude did a cannonball into the pool. And all of a sudden it was like a mover and it was like, woohoo! And we made fans that now come out to see us when we play in like Detroit or random places yeah. around the country. We're like, we were on the first Kid Rockers. We've been fans of yours ever since. So yeah. it's hard sometimes at the time to know what the impact's going to be. But saying yes to things that maybe feel uncomfortable at the time have, yeah. has been a huge thing. Like we've gone into the lion's den a couple times and, and at the end of the day we found out people have a special affinity for some of these songs that they call guilty pleasure. Right. Why feel guilty about pleasure? If you like it, who, I mean, granted you were saying in the twenties, you care about what people think about you. Right. You know, thirties you don't. And in forties you realize nobody even thinks about you at all. Yeah. And you have to kind of, with some of this stuff, go, good music is good music. And people are going to come around. Or they're not. Right. More than likely, good music gets paid off with uh, respect. And I think people have respected that whether they like hollow notes or the idea of what this music represents, when we play it, it 
evokes a certain feeling and they like that feeling right whether they should it's guilty pleasure or not and good and, good music is good music and a good performance is a good performance sure. yeah. and i think uh regardless regardless of genre if if you're able to like read the room and put your thing forward earnestly uh and yeah and um you well, know. and that is a big part of it, you know, yeah. not coming up there and being like, this is, this is funny, right? Ha ha ha. Where people go, wait a minute, are they making fun of this? As soon as that's on the table of like, maybe is this, are they taking this seriously or not? Right. You know, with the fake mustaches or with just like the wrong gear, you know, somebody playing like, a, you know, some BC rich through lots of distortion and a big, huge Marshall stack. And they're like, I'm going to be the loudest thing on stage. That's right. not this music. Right. And if you approach it like that, like Riggs of dad, then there are going to be people who they're going to call bullshit, mm -hmm. you know, and they should. And then that brings the overall vibe and level of the experience down, I think. Right. Um, and also if you're doing it cynically, like if you're if your angle is like people are into this, I'm gonna do this because that's what people are into, but yeah. you're not you don't really have a passion for it. Sure. That's gonna come across. I think too. more than people knowing whether or not the backline kit was the right kit for the gig, Definitely. they pick up on all those things right. way easier. Right. And then the, you may not see it at the time, but the next time you go back to that city you can say, oh well, it was cold or it was raining or it was an, uh, kids were back in school. A lot of times it was just, no, you didn't light a fire under their asses mm, yeah. to, to, to say, I'm going to follow them and find out when they're playing again. Yeah. And then they're going to come back and they're going to bring a couple more people. And we've seen the venues, not only cities that I never would have imagined going to, even with some of the original bands that I've played in, you know, I would have loved to have played like Portland or something. I've ne I had never been to Portland before and I, it was a really cool city and we got to play there at a really actually great venue. And it was a good crowd for the first time we've played there. And we'll, we'll go back and play there one more time and then maybe play the third time we go to Portland, a bigger venue than that. That's what's yeah. happened in L.A. and New York and Nashville, some of the bigger cities, especially these people that fly in to go on these cruises right. who are not just like saving up a year's paycheck to get to afford to go on the Kid Rock cruise, right, although right. there was definitely that. <laughs> you know, like I've seen some really cool turnaround because people have said, I can't believe I missed it. My friend told me I should go, and then now I'm here, and next time I'm definitely going to be there. Right. But that's any original band too, right? Like the hit on the radio is what drew people out to go see them. Maybe you liked the rest of the set, maybe you didn't, but if you did a good job, then people are going to come back and see you. Even if you don't have... Like bands like Wilco, right. who don't have a lot of radio airplay, but they are a great live band, yeah. and they build a, a they built a a career around people wanting to see that live. Mm -hmm. You know, just there's a reason why they can tour year round and make a lot more money than than, than counting on what's the what's gonna hit, right. what's gonna what's gonna put our finger on the pulse of what's on the radio right now. I mean, yeah. that's. And then, so come back to the original thing. I mean, we don't really know if any of these original songs are going to do anything different for us and our longevity. Right. Um, I think that we know in the back of our minds that we're, we're going to be playing, you know, this music. And there's nothing wrong with, with as a drummer, especially getting to play Tristan Bowden stuff from the Kenny Loggins records and getting to try to play these fills and digging my, sinking my teeth into some of this cool material. It could be a lot worse if we had picked, uh, I don't know. Not, I don't want to say any bands because I don't want to throw anybody <laughs> under the bus. But we could have picked a band 
and it could have taken off and I have to play this one thing, this right. one, like the doors, I got to play in a doors tribute and I got to play, you know, John Densmore's stuff every single night yeah. in and out. I hope I like the doors because now I got to do this all the time. Right. Um, I get a lot of variety and it's changing too. Like we can say, yeah, I mean, let's take these 10 songs out of the set list and replace them with these 10. Right. Because like we said at the beginning, it's kind of this endless reservoir. Absolutely. Like hit after hit. Well, and there's hit. real, people want to put a definition on exactly what Yacht Rock is. It has to be these years. It had to have been recorded in, it can't be from England. So, so this band is immediately, so right. the Bee Gees can't be Yacht Rock. Right. Because they're not from LA. They didn't record with studio musicians. But that's they the didn't. thing about you guys, because you're kind of anonymous. If you, like, if you take a song that's kind of like outside the time period or outside the genre of what the Yacht Rock police say Yacht Rock is. Yeah. But if you put it in the middle of your concert with your outfits, with your personalities, and you play it after what a fool believes, right? everybody's in. If they like it, then we keep playing it. Right. If they don't, <laughs> we're not stubborn and force it on them. We know that people have, again, come to this as a way to not, unfortunately, probably not go around the corner to a smaller club and discover some new indie band that's going to you know, be the big hot ticket. And they could have seen that, but right. there's also a chance that they would have been challenged. They would have had to have listened. They would have been annoyed by something and they would have left. And they, you know, they, ch at the end of the day, they chose to come see us and we wanted to give them as good or as serious as a performance as they would have seen for many of those bands trying to prove their songs. And that's, you know, we've been slipping this original song that we just came out with a video for. And it's step. surprising and step. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. surprisingly been like, Granted, we know we play Africa immediately following it. Oh, sure. <laughs> so that, like, right. anyone that goes, I don't know, oh, yeah, this song. <laughs> um, so we're not stupid about yeah, it. Yeah. But, you know, if that song ends up becoming a staple on our set, great. And it's just, it, it kind of breathes a little fresh air and life into the band and into our set, just doing something that we all creatively right. had. You know, that's 100 a huge key to, to like it. any band, whether you're doing like a van tour or an arena tour. Uh, whether you're a cover act or an original act, like just finding ways to like keep the set list a little bit fresh. Like you got to keep it consistent to a certain extent, but just finding ways to kind of like knock yourself out of the pattern and say yeah. like, oh, we're gonna do this a little bit differently tonight. Let's get our head screwed on straight and uh, you know be in the moment and see how this goes over instead of just going on autopilot the same set list. Yeah, yeah, uh, and uh, and I think uh, also not being afraid to surround yourself with people who uh, work for you who aren't afraid to be honest with you. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, we've have a lot of employees now that we didn't have when we started out, and you know, part of their job is we download work to them and they are able to do stuff that gives us more chance to get rest or to mm -hmm. be creative, not have to call booking agents and, and call venues and do that and let somebody else do that. Um, but hopefully with that creativity, we also have some of those people that we trust say, I'm not so sure about this. Like, it, you know, maybe think about this or that because it's very easy, especially at the age that we are and how long we've been playing other people's music to be like, uh, this is cool. Right. And just not, you know, like, we really wanted to make sure we got some tastemakers involved to, to give us feedback and, and not just make us a record that sounds exactly like the stuff that we play. We want it to be, you know, in the way that Bruno Mars, you know, his music is clearly has a place on the radio mm -hmm. or Mark Ronson, a lot of stuff he produces sounds timeless and sounds like, you know, I, I use the Dap Kings to play with Amy Winehouse. And so her music has that, but it also has something cool and fresh and a little bit modern. So yeah. we can live in that world. And I, that was a really hard challenge for us to find, but I think we, we did as close to doing that as yeah. we can. I think you did too. And, I mean, it's, uh, it's an original song. It like, like you said, it feels 
kind of timeless. It feels of this time, but also evocative of sure. what, what you do for the rest of the set. Well, I'm curious you know? to see what the other songs, how they're going to to, to live in that same canon. Um, record Store Days in two weeks, and we're doing uh, an in-store Criminal Records. Oh, cool. Uh, the Friday after Thanksgiving at like 7 o'clock, and we're going to play a set of maybe four or five of the tunes from the record and then a few others. And we're releasing 1,000 45s uh, of the... Doobie Bounce, which is our next, going to be the next single. And then on the B side of that will be a live version of us doing a Doobie Brothers song. Nice. So, you know, once people get those and have that, that's like just another thing out there that's like this random, wait a minute, it's a tribute band, right? Or a cover band or whatever they want to call us. But there's this original thing. So figuring out how to how to sell that to people and not be like, you know, over explain it and, and apologize for it necessarily, but right. but also know how not to confuse some of the people who really just don't again, they no offense, they just don't want to think. They want to go out, they want to get drunk, they want to put on the captain's hat, they want to sing Rich right. Girl. And right. they and they don't want wait a minute, an original thing, but But you, you know. don't you don't even have to announce it. No, like, you, no. I mean if you played if you played Rich Girl and then just started playing step and played it, and then played Africa. Oh, well, there are cover songs we play that people don't know. I mean, especially on sure. the younger crowd. That's what I'm saying. Some of it kind of goes over their head. You could play your original song, and a lot of people probably wouldn't even know. They'd try to look up, like, 70s step yacht rock song. Yeah, yeah. Like, who is it? Yeah. <laughs> That's like, you know, some of this stuff, when we get into the, like, the deeper one-hit wonders, I, I want to do, like, a, a Dr. Hook in the Medicine Show uh, song, <laughs> you know, because when you go back and watch them, they also, like, w- there's a guy with, like, a cowboy hat and a pa- eye patch, and he's playing kungas and he's singing lead vocals up front next to another guy who looks very much yacht rock, with like the beard and the, and the all denim Canadian tuxedo. And there's like, you know, another guy playing flute next. They they very much are this sort of like di- like Mickey Mouse and the and 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 this Disney club. Like, who are all these different characters? It's like a they, Muppet band. Yeah, they should not be on stage <laughs> together. But then you hear the music and sexy eyes. I feel like would be like the perfect song, but we have to go, well, we have these new original songs. If it's not going to be as hype as the other stuff that we're playing, like we can't add a chill, deep cut when we're getting ready to introduce original stuff. Did you watch the uh, Breaking Bad uh, Netflix movie? Yeah, El Camino. El Camino. My favorite scene is is when he's driving a pickup truck and he's got Jesse's like down in the back, like hunched down with the dead body. Right. And he's, that's Dr. Hook. He's like, (laughs) sharing the night together. Oh yeah. Like that song is so, perfect and there's a couple people that have been like asking you know hey can you guys play uh you know this dr hooks i don't know if it's because that brought it out into the forefront again being yeah. in that movie um but well, it's just it's but like, there's no rules right it like feeds on itself like you know they i'm sure they put that song in that movie just because of the general popularity of yacht rock yeah there's right? a lot it's, of songs that are yacht rock in that movie so, so now, like you know, bands like you have kind of fed into that, and one of those songs end up on Breaking Bad, and then people watch Breaking Bad, and yeah. they're like, "Oh, that song, yeah." Oh, Guardians of the Galaxy did that for us big time. Yeah. We had all we had already established ourselves years before that first soundtrack came out, mm-hmm. and it was like almost all the song between the two volumes, almost all the songs. I mean, you can see it. Uh, Judd Apatow is obsessed with the genre so he puts it in a lot like Will Ferrell's character listens to Little River Band in a lot, or was wearing like the, in Step Brothers he's wearing the Pablo Cruz t-shirt right. you know there's a lot of not so subtle nods yeah, to yeah. or yeah I was watching this, the last uh, uh, season of Mindhunter uh, on Netflix which is David Fincher and I mean granted you're talking about people who are in bars having conversations in the era where this would have been the music that's on the radio but they're still picking these songs and I've I've I, hear it at the grocery store here at CVS you can hear you know like Al Stewart 
um, you know, like half of these songs that normally you would have never heard before. I feel like the dentist office is where I heard them as a kid. Yeah. That was where they were playing a lot of this music because it was like it, whether it ever took a break and it was replaced by something else, I can't remember. But I'm definitely noticing now when I'm shopping, like just like, oh, that's 90% of our set. Yeah. I think it's it's like there's no R-rated stuff. Like, yeah. Everyone can listen to it, but it's not Muzak where it's just like soprano sax. You right. know, like there's it's uh, it's so inoffensive and it's it's like you said. I mean, the quality is there, the musicianship is there, the songwriting is there, but it doesn't it doesn't challenge a listener or an audience member no. in the way that you know um, a more uh, like Rage Against the Machine or a politically sure. active because even you know during during that era there were more politically active or socially conscious acts. But that's not what what Yacht Rock was about. That's not what AM Gold was about. No, and imagine a band like Snarky Puppy, who I I love watching those videos, and I love just watching everybody making the stank face, just like, oh, that lick, or that, you know, like, it's amazing. But I wonder what it would be like to take that band and then put, like, you know, Carole King or Carly Simon or Linda Ronstadt or any of the, like, you know... um, the California 70s singer-songwriters in front of them, kind of the Laurel Canyon thing, and yeah. be like, play for that. You know, it's really hard to work so hard to be such a, uh, you know, top-tier musician and not have those talents showcased sonically. You know, and that was the thing about a lot of, uh, like, Ricky Lee Jones, Chucky's in Love. Like, there's one moment and Gad does that one thing where you know 100% that's Gad. Right. But the rest of the tune, you're not thinking, like, okay, this is a drum standout drum performance. I mean, I am. But, like, somehow those studio musicians on all those classic records were able to be chameleons. Like, they were sh- they were chosen to be a badass and put their own little touch and licks in there. Right. And also be completely... Uh, self be serving to the song, and that is a challenge for me on drums. To go, okay, this is as simple as it gets. Drums aren't really even that big of a, a part of this song, and then the very next song is Rosanna. <laughs> you know, and you have to suddenly think about all of that, and then turn that off, and try not to play that same way on "How Long" by Ace, right? Which is the whole song is pretty much one thing. There's barely a fill in the whole song, yeah. Or "Steal Away," or a lot of the Doobie Brothers stuff. Very few drum fills. It's almost like they just want a train, yeah. And, and the drums are just laying a bed, and everything else is stacked on top of that. Um, and turning that on and off. Some nights I do better than others, but it's I actually kind of look along in the set and I'm like, when do I get a break? <laughs> right. Because some of this stuff is very uh, syncopated and, and chops involved. Yeah. And then other stuff is like, play it as simple as, you know, try not to do the same thing you did on that song. Right, yes. right. There's a song like that, uh, Ruby Bell and the Sulfonics had this song called Overwhelming, and it's, it's what you were talking about, just a train. Like, yeah. Like, very few yeah. fills. Uh, like I mean, it's it's almost a disco song, um, and when I first started playing with them, I didn't really look forward to that song very much. Like I I was looking forward to the ones that had like more fills. I get a little moment. There's a cool sure. you know. But now I'm looking forward to that song more and more, just to sit back and groove, and like you know enjoy the the basis. You know, Aaron Trubick is usually oh the yeah bass. yeah I've played with so Aaron just before. just like you know laying down a groove for six minutes. With Aaron Trubick, <laughs> like yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's as much fun as as any fill. Yeah, there's definitely like a uh, like a jogger's high, like a runner's yeah, high, definitely. And sometimes you have to remind yourself, like just kind of like be in the moment. And yeah, it can be a trance, like three or four minutes in, and you're just like, 
I don't want this to end. Right. It feels so good. If you can get to that point. Like right, right. late in the evening has been that way where it's like once you get once you get that groove under your hands, it's not that difficult. Yeah. Maintaining it and making it feel great over the course of the whole song is another challenge. But yeah. if you can and you do it, it's 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 definitely like uh this feels good, I don't want this to end. Yeah. That's when you know hopefully like you're on the right track right, if, you, right. if you can get to that point. This episode is brought to you by DrumSellers.com, the niche marketplace where drummers, drum retailers, and drum manufacturers buy and sell their gear. List your drums for sale for free, and the only fee is 4% if it sells. Simple. Check out all the new used vintage and custom drum eye candy at DrumSellers.com. Did you take over for Radabaz that he was playing before you with Ruby? Um, I know she's had to use a, a few different drummers over the years. The one immediately prior to me was Mark Carbone. Oh, right. He okay. was there for a couple years. Because Radabaz got really busy, I feel like, with Don and the Buffalo. Right. And I don't, out. I don't know if Radabaz was ever, like, steady with them. Okay. He, Maybe I mean, he's done, when he's done I was bunch... introduced to her, I think he may have just been playing at the time. Right. He, I mean, he's played with them a bunch, and he's recorded with them. I think it was because Kevin Scott was playing, yes. too. And the two of them had done a lot of stuff. Yes. And continue to, it seems like. from yeah. Although, Radabaz moved to Nashville. Basically, yeah. Is that right? I think yeah. he still owns his house here, but he's basically there. Um, I've seen a lot of people either moving to New York or Nashville. Yeah, man. Like. Marlon's gone. Kevin's gone. Um, is that just that they're younger than I am, but is that just the age of, okay, I'm not, I don't have kids. If I'm going to move, I'm going to try something out. If I'm going to feel like I'm restless and I want to explore, I got to do it now. Because well, that was kids for me. Like the mm-hmm. age when I was getting restless and thinking, Maybe I got to go to New York or L.A. Right. As soon as you start seeing your kids make friends and run up and down the street and feel really comfortable and safe. Yeah. And, and I'm like, well, that's what I had. And I want that for them. Yeah, yeah. You know? Well, in the case of Marlon, I mean, he's he's not that young. He's almost 40. And, yeah. um, he, you know, he, he'd spent a bunch of time in New York and knows a lot of people there and plays with people there. And his wife, uh, Andy, got a job at a college... In, I forgot what college it is. But was that what came first? Was her getting a job? Because I know a lot of yeah. drummers will move because their wives are located on like the East Coast or the West Coast. And they're like, well, I can find work there. I'm a musician. That's why I moved here. My wife got a job here. Yeah. And and you know we we wouldn't have moved if she got a job in Boise, Idaho. <laughs> still be in Santa Fe? No, we'd still be in L.A. Oh, in L.A. Um, okay, that's right. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I think. Um, you know, Marlon, uh, I want to talk to him again because I interviewed him once a couple of years ago, but maybe like after he's been in New York in a, a year, yeah. you know, I want to talk to him again. I saw an but, Instagram post of his where he said, you know, I'm looking forward to the highs and lows. New yeah. York is going to kick my ass, but he, I'm going to learn from those experiences. And that's kind of the way you got to go into totally. it. Totally. And Marlon, I think he's going to kill it. He's just the T-1000. He can play anything. Yeah, yeah, he's right. so good. Um, but he, like, you know, Andy was looking for a job. Um and they, you know, she looked for some jobs in Atlanta, but they also discussed like what are some cities that we would both want to move to, um, and New York was one of them, and she ended up getting a job there. In Kevin's case, he had like, you know, there were a few years when he kind of had dual citizenship between Atlanta and New York. He was starting to play with Wayne Krantz oh, sure. in New York, yeah. and and just traveling back and forth a lot. Um, and ultimately, he he met his now wife in New York. She, sure, she lived there. So that was even more incentive for him to just like, you know, pick it up and move. Um, yeah, I mean, as as entertainers and as you know, musicians and actors go, um, you kind of just have to go where the work is. And it seems like more and more 
live performance is what's really paying. Um, and it's, if that's what you're, if that's what lights your fire too, mm -hmm. you know, is, is that, that need for gratification of being on stage and get in and, and that energy and all the, just like the wear and tear that you put on yourself by, by getting around there. I mean, if, if there was like a really, really secure studio gig, I love being in the studio and I love the fact that you get to go home and sleep in your own bed yeah. and that the gear is pretty much already there. And it's just like, it's a lot less of the, the, the physically demanding part of the job. Um, that's just not really the, the case. Even when it was more prominent to do a lot of session work, I still wasn't doing enough of it to quit everything else right. uh, that I was doing at the time. So, you know, I, I look at those guys like, y you could really be in Atlanta probably and I'll see you as much yeah. as I did before you moved. Right. Because we're all sort of vagabonds and going and, you know, wherever you hang your hat at the end of the day, you're still going to be getting on a bus or a plane or something to go somewhere uh, for that next run of dates. Yeah. So you can be anywhere. I just, I like Atlanta's airport in that there are direct flights yep. everywhere. Everybody goes through Atlanta to get somewhere else. But if you already are here, you yeah. pretty much can get anywhere you need to go. And I feel like as far as like weather goes, yes, it gets really hot and it gets really cold, but so does everywhere in the country. Yeah. We just get a, hopefully a little bit longer stretch of the nicer weather. <laughs> yeah, to you deal do. With. No, I mean, I lived in Kansas city for seven years and, and Atlanta isn't any hotter in the summer than Kansas city no, was. No. And Kansas city was below zero every winter. Yeah. So we don't have to deal with that here. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's the, you got to find the lesser of two evils or whatever. Eventually. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I never saw myself living in Atlanta this long. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right. Being from Indiana, I uh, I envision myself like never as a Southerner, and I still don't. Atlanta, you're not a Southerner if you live here. I don't. I'm gonna at least just embrace that. Uh, well, no, I'm gonna push back on this. Why? Why is Atlanta not a Southern city? It it's not that it's not a Southern city. I don't think it has the mentality. Uh, there are very few people do you, do you meet here that were born and raised in Atlanta. Same thing as when I lived in L.A. Almost everyone I met was like, I came here from such and such a place. Not I was born and raised in L.A. That's a very hard thing. Right. So you, so you find a lot of the people that make up this city that has a predetermined notion of what it's going to be by vagabonds or by transients, people that are like either on their way or they're just coming here from somewhere else, not sure if they're going to stay yet. Mm -hmm. Um and my wife's not from here. I'm not. No one in my band is from here. Yeah. Not no one. I mean, the closest would be um, our bass players from New Orleans, but uh -huh. he's lived all over the country. He moved to L.A. to study out there with Ganesh, and um, and then eventually settled in on L.A. And I think a lot of people they just get here, and it's sort of like this this cool group of people who have come from either it didn't work out in this other place for me, and maybe right. it'll work out here, or. They just got lazy and tired of traveling. I mean, certainly if you gave me um, a really great excuse to move to New York, it is one of the uh, – and L.A. to a certain extent too. There are the places that when I'm there, I feel super challenged. Yeah. Like I am definitely having to be on my toes all the time. Yeah. I don't feel that. I'm very relaxed and comfortable here. Me too. I don't – even when I go downtown, I'm like, eh, yeah, I'm going to a soccer game at Mercedes-Benz. And then I, I head home. I just don't – I don't get that like, oh, shit, like, you know, the, everything's on fire all the time, <laughs> right. you know. And, like, that's exhausting it after is. a while if you're not ready for it. Yeah. But there's something about that when I go to visit. What, what is uh, Lee Von Helm says, like, in the uh, in, in, in the documentary uh, Last Waltz, he's like, uh, you know, we went to New York and, and we, got, we got a real adult dose. 
you know and it's like you do you can go in there and kind of like get your ass handed to you and be like good better luck next time right you know and um even when i lived in chicago for a year i felt like i just wasn't quite ready for the hardships of of how expensive and crowded and uh how, how many people were trying to all make it in yeah. that same small place. We talk about it all the time. There are cities like that that like some people thrive on that environment. Like it Absolutely. feeds their fire. But for other people, like you don't you don't have to continue suffering in a city like that if if it's not you. Yeah. Like find a you city. You have to listen you. to what the world's trying to tell you sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And Chicago, for everything that I really wanted to work out there. I kept having so many things like, this isn't working for you. This isn't working for you. Then I finally listened and was like, well, what can be wrong with moving to the South? And granted, yes, it's very much a Southern city and a lot of the Southern hospitality. Um, There's obviously going to be cuisine. There's going to be a lot more barbecue down here than you're going to get in the Midwest. Here people eat grits up north. Like it's just no one – it's all instant. So nobody – like they don't know what it's like. Like there's just definitely – there's a a vibe here that I will say is a southern city. And I like that about it. But it's not trying to – It's not as pronounced as a place like Charleston. No. Or or New Orleans or Mobile. Like it, it and has it's not Florida. Florida is a different Florida, country. We, yeah, and Texas. <laughs> and I like touring in those places and going. And, and the fans have been great. I don't want to try to like you know throw any of those states, um, you know, under the bus. But I think they also they they brag almost like uh, stubbornly without looking at what they're bragging about. Of like, don't mess with Texas. Right. But you know. Part of, our, part of our country. Let's all right. Let's not separate ourselves down. And Florida, the same thing. It's like you go down there, and it's just this whole nother way of thinking about the world. And I was and in the Houston our, our lives. I was in the Houston airport a couple months ago, and I walked past this. It was a big poster, like a big picture thing. It said it had the Houston skyline, and it said "Welcome to Houston, the capital of the South." And I was like, "Fuck you guys!" Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Atlanta's the capital of the South. Well, at least Texas has Austin, you know. Right. It's, it yeah, can yeah. be anywhere in the world. Now, it's just a cool – it's just a really cool city. Yeah. Yes, it's very Texas, but it's um, – you know, I, I think every state has a really cool spot in it. And, For sure. And, and, and some states, you, it's very easy to find. In other states, you have to work a little harder to find what that is. But whether it's a college town – or whether it's just something because the nature there is so beautiful, and yeah. the only way to, to experience it is to mm, deal with some of the other things that maybe aren't, or you know, some things that are still backwards, or people just haven't decided to embrace twenty yeah. first century way of thinking about things. But you know, that is one of the cool and and sometimes struggles for me uh, is is traveling this much. You get to get a slice of what the rest of the world and country is like. And that can be like a really cool eye-opening thing. And sometimes it can be really, you know, depressing. Like, right. Or reassuring. Like, I'm, I live in the right place. I'm glad. I couldn't imagine if this was my norm. You know? Yeah. There, and to those other some... people, they feel the exact same way. They don't want to come to where we are and yeah. live where we are. Yeah. Uh, and I'm aware that there's that divide. And I'm, like I said, I'm willing to have a conversation about it and not just immediately go i'm right you're wrong like you know i feel like we used to be in a place where we could have more conversations right and not necessarily have to agree on everything right but at the same time like they're they're like you said there you go to certain parts of the country you go to certain towns 
and it just becomes apparent like th- these people are living a very different life absolutely than than i am or than other people i know in other cities like it's just a different existence yeah in some cities and some you know you can make a judgment as to whether it's bad or or worse you know than than another type of place but i also think atlanta has become almost like a mini la in a lot of ways in that it's trying i've been watching watchmen and that's decatur like almost it's not just you know oh shot around the south like almost every shot i'm recognizing they didn't even take the signs down for worth more jewelers, I, Iberian pig. All the, they, just, I, they must have been like, "Hey, if we don't have to replace this. Are you guys cool with some free advertising?" Because yeah. it's set in Oklahoma, and that's Decatur, right? And you know, so not just the obvious stuff like Walking Dead, where they make a point to be like, "Yeah, this was filmed around Atlanta." There's just there's place there's movies all over, like like Stuber. I watched on a flight recently. It was supposed to be set in L.A., and it's clearly it's all around you know Atlanta and. Right. Uh, uh, you, there's so many people living here now that are in the movie business that came from LA. Mm-hmm. Maybe they stay in an Airbnb and they knock out like the costume design and they go back to LA. But a lot of people are moving here and working now that all the Marvel stuff yeah. is shot at Pinewood. And there's just, there's, it's like, again, it's more things coming from other places defining what this is. But you can watch, um, I just watched the new Questlove show that uh, AMC. Uh, hip hop songs that uh, shook America, and there's been four episodes. I think the fifth one was on last night, but the last one was Outcast, uh, Elevators. So it's all this footage from around Atlanta, and obviously they interview a lot of people involved in LaFace Records yeah. and, and Andre and Big Boy, and like it's cool for them to go. This is what put Atlanta hip hop, which now it's not even Atlanta hip hop. Like there's so much the sound, yeah. Migos, and a lot of this stuff and trap music that yep. came out of this wasn't really a thing during the last gasp of what was the East Coast, West Coast, which right. kind of killed off a lot of that music. You know, the South was just sitting there waiting for their turn. And right. when they got it, they exploded. So I take pride in the fact that, yes, there is an Atlanta and there is a Southern uh, presence to this city that you can kind of choose whether or not you want to be involved in or not. Right. Because a lot of your life, if you just stay in your own little pocket in a neighborhood in the city and you just do your stuff, it doesn't feel very Southern to me. Yeah. But it, it, it the, you know, the the South, that, that term and the yes. concept of the yes. South just has so much baggage attached with it. Uh, and rightfully so. Yeah. But, but you, like, people are s- starting to not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. And, and recognize that there's so much about the South from a cultural perspective, from a, a, a musical and a culinary perspective that is worth preserving, that sure. doesn't have baggage attached to it. Well, and I hope we do that. Yeah, absolutely. And that is, that is uh, distinctly American, you know, as, as American as anything in New England. So I think Atlanta, Atlanta is part of the conversation of, of like, shining a light on uh, things about the South that are good and worth preserving. Things that are as old as slavery. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. But that, uh, you know, unlike slavery, uh, are, are worth continuing. <laughs> well, and David Cross talks about this. I don't know if you listen to much of him, but he, uh, he did a stand-up special. Uh, actually, strangely enough, it was at the Variety Playhouse, and I had just moved to Atlanta, and I had met a couple friends that had a ticket, and I went along with them. And that ended up being the special that he recorded and released. Uh, it was like a double album called Shut Up, You Fucking Baby <laughs> on uh, on Sub Pop. And when I listened to it, I started being like, wait a minute, he said that during mine. But he probably says this during everybody's, uh, uh, you know, when they see them do stand-up. And then he got to a part where he opened the Atlanta newspaper and read one of the editorials, and I was like, nope, that was our show. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, he talks about the 
anywhere in the country has elements of the South or the Southern small town, closed minded, like, you yeah. know, you don't have, and he's from Atlanta. Right? Right. He grew up in like Dunwoody. And, um, you know, I think he's like, I travel all over the place and you can be in any state. And I can say this from being in Indiana that has a kind of more, I have to be careful because I don't want to come off sounding like a snob. Um, but, you know, he's like, there's the South in every state. If yeah. you go into small town America, uh, uh, th- that exists, not just where people kind of do the redneck accent. Uh, that can happen anywhere. Like, I'm from Bikersfield, California, man. That's the way we talk. He's like, well, screw you, man. I'm from Juneau, Alaska. That's the way we talk up here. Well, hey, man, like, you, I'm, I'm banger Maine. And this right. is, well, maybe not Maine so much, but, like, as you go around the country and you leave the main cosmopolitan areas and yeah. you head into small little spots, you know, there is the old sense of, like, you know, the southern – uh, you know, lots of just uh, televisions sitting on top of non-working televisions. Right. Larry the Cable Guy, right, right. Kind of well, as you're examples. saying this, I'm realizing like you know, Atlanta. Atlanta is a worldly cosmopolitan city in the South. Yes, right. Yeah, but so so you can find that in the South, and what you're saying is by the same token, you can find the bad parts of the South outside the South. Absolutely. Yeah, I you know I I will say as we've traveled around, there are. Whether you like it or not, more of the let's take an area that used to be for better or for worse, uh, like the ice house lofts. This was a train track pulled up, you know, a train pulled up in the train tracks. They loaded something onto it. We were manufacturing everything, right. keeping everything in this country. And now all these these empty warehouses are being turned into like lofts right. with restaurants and shops down stairs and people living up above them and then now you get a younger more um open-minded i i guess demographic living there mm-hmm. and then shopping around those areas so the nicer restaurants come in coffee shops come in right you know this make- is what marlon Patton refers to <laughs> as the uh live work play eat shit die facility <laughs> okay yes i like that i like that yeah um, and that's happening in cities all over the country yeah i mean i was in Chattanooga recently and I couldn't believe I was like you could have been any in any one of those kind of microcosms of like the kind of the bearded hipster barista yeah kind of person that 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 exists in all of those cities that didn't know where to go before maybe had to move to Atlanta right now they can stay and work in their version of that and, anywhere and they can do their silk screens or their sculpture or whatever the fuck it is yeah, they do yeah uh, because or they podcast, f- <laughs> 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 right? <laughs> what a waste of time. Uh, uh, but they can they can afford to live there. Like what's happening? What happened in New York in the seventies? The reason one of the reasons New York became such an artistic world capital is because it was cheap to live in Manhattan. It was a fucking war zone. Oh, right. And yeah. all the artists, all, all the artists who were broke, just moved to Manhattan and started doing their art in abandoned lofts. Yeah, you know. But yeah. now the opposite has happened. It's too expensive to live in New York or LA or San Francisco or Chicago or I mean increasingly Atlanta or Nashville or something like that so creative people are filtering down to a Chattanooga or to a Bangor, Maine or to whatever like. yeah there's got to be spillover too I yeah. know you, you you go down to Nashville it's almost barely recognizable over that area that they put the convention center in where they have Summer Nam yeah 
and there's all these roundabouts and there's all these huge, big, like luxury hotels going up that have, you know, uh, you know, fireplaces upstairs where you can stand outside and look at the skyline. And yeah. You I, we, played it, we played at one of them a few yeah. months ago. And the people that are there, you would never be able to pick them out of crowd and go, oh, you're from Nashville. Right. And maybe they're, maybe they are, maybe they're not. Right. But that. As much as the people that have been living and wor- working there their whole lives are going, oh, I hate this about it. It's making your city as relevant, if not more than ever before. It's bringing more business and it's keeping jobs there. And I think that they're looking at, well, Atlanta can't have all of the industry here for you know, film and uh, conventions. And so Nashville is going to catch some of that. Mm-hmm. And then people are going to be able to maybe afford easier to find a place to live there. I know some of the people I talked to in Louisville where we played Saturday night, they were like, oh, you live in Atlanta. Yeah, I looked at Atlanta, but my wife and I found a place here and it's for the amount of you know property that we were able to get for the price. And, you know, he works at a really cool steakhouse and he was like, this is you know, I like it here and we're yeah. close to everything and it's easy and traffic isn't that bad. And I was like, oh, well, I think maybe you just sold me on that part of it. Because right. traffic is one thing I don't think we'll ever see let up. No, uh, it's not going to get It's better. just a fact of life. You just have to know how to work around it. But, yeah. But I, 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 love, I love being here. I love the musicians that I've met. I will say, I think for a supportive network and community, which is why I kind of brought up some of the other guys that are leaving or have left, um, it's been one of the, the the best places to meet somebody and have no feelings of like really competition. Yeah. Like everyone's been, Hey, can you cover for me? And there's not like, Hey, but this is my gig, you know, make sure you don't steal it from me. Like everyone is very open to, to collaborate yeah. and to feel like this doesn't have to be this protective environment of like, I got to hold on to everything. Cause it's just going to get stolen at some moment. Right. And there are a lot of cities I can't say that about, or at least when I was living in those cities, yeah. I couldn't say that. About. I feel the same way about it. It's, 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 it's a really nurturing, great, positive, uh, spot in terms of at least the, the, the musical, um, and, you know, experience that I've had yeah. and, the, and, the, and the musicians have been nothing but, uh, but really inspiring and, and cool, not on just a musical level, but on a on a personal level. Yeah, they're all really solid, good really good, solid people yeah. that live here. Yeah, and I don't know what that is, what's in the water, or what was the draw, but or maybe you just get here and you finally wherever you were before you let your shoulders drop, and that makes you a nicer person. Yeah, and that comes out in your work and your it relationships. Happened, it happened to but, me. Like I, I felt a shift from when I moved to L.A. to here. Like I was just, um, I was less on my guard. I was less self conscious here. Uh, you know, Atlanta and the musicians here just kind of put me at ease, yeah, uh, and really, really welcomed me. So I, I think it's why I don't feel that the challenge to go. Well, what would have New York been like? Because I, I know I can, I can still go there. I still do go there, and I visit family, and I, pl- I play music, and I right. love it. But then I, I try to realistically, not in some sort of pipe dream, but realistically, go okay. I live here's what I probably can afford. I live here. This is my life now. What's that going to look like, twenty four seven? Once I pick up everything and yeah. move here. And I know that without a doubt, I will have more stress. And stress is okay if that stress provides a better overall quality of living. Right. I, at the, with the creature comforts I have and what I've gotten used to in the routine in my life, at the age that I am, I think I know the answer to almost every one of those places. That I know, even best case scenario, what that's going to involve. Right. And I, I just don't – I haven't been – we'll say this. I haven't been – convinced to even really realistically think about anywhere outside of Atlanta. Yeah. Yeah. So me neither. Yeah. Let's Which get out of here. Yeah. We got to get it's out. Great talking to you. Great talking to you, man. Thanks for coming over. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Absolutely. Yeah. Safe travels out there with on the, on the high seas. 
Thanks. Yeah, well, pretty soon we're all going to be underwater on that note. <laughs> oh, that's so, a permanent cruise. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> cool, man. Great talking to you. Thanks, Zach. Thanks to Mark. Hope you enjoyed that. Look for Yacht Rock Review coming to a venue near you in the spring of 2020. And check out their new original album, Hot Dads in Tight Jeans. You can purchase the single Step, which you heard some of in this episode, and you can pre-order the full album on iTunes. You can also check out the music video for Step on YouTube, which I gotta say is super cool. Next week, Matthew Krauss will be talking with Matt Takiu, who is the drummer for Jacob Dylan's new documentary and concert film entitled Echo in the Canyon about the music scene in LA's Laurel Canyon in the 60s. Hope you'll check that out, and until then, thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.